All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got an awesome Tuesday show coming up for you this morning, including the pandemic hammering the BC economy. We're going to take a closer look at BC businesses fighting to survive this morning. The TransLink layoffs, the Metro Vancouver Transit service cuts, that'll be on Baldry's Beat at 10 a.m. The latest on the horrifying Nova Scotia mass shootings, the grim search for answers continues this morning and it's another day another cancellation of an iconic vancouver event the honda celebration of light fireworks festival canceled the list of summer festivals getting canceled gets longer by the day that's all coming up on the show today but first let's talk about global oil prices right now and the impact on the economy especially here at home oil prices have crashed as the coronavirus pandemic continues to wreak havoc on the economy and the markets. At one point yesterday, the price of U.S. oil actually slumped to minus $37 a barrel, meaning producers were actually paying to get rid of their oil. The price dropped more than 300%. Canadian oil prices also plunged into negative territory. This is brutal for the Canadian energy sector, especially, of course, the province of Alberta. Have a listen to this. This is Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. That to today we have seen for the first time in history our energy prices trading at negative values. Uh, Western Canadian Select trading below zero. Uh, this is sadly something I uh, predicted was quite possible a month ago. Okay, and here's Kenny making the case that this is not just Alberta's problem. That this is not an Alberta issue, this is not an industry-specific issue, that this uh, strikes right at the heart of the entire Canadian economy. Uh, If we see uh, the current negative price situation continue for any period of time, uh, the implications obviously for this industry are, are very serious, could not be more serious. Okay, we've assembled a great panel here to talk about this issue. Now, Max Fawcett is here. He's a writer for McLean's Magazine and The Walrus. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Max. Good. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Also, Diane Francis on the line, editor-at-large at the National Post newspaper. Diane, thanks a lot for doing this. No problem. Thank you. Diane, let me go to you first. We just heard from Jason Kenney there mm-hmm. talking about this remarkable plunge in oil prices. Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because... Uh, <laughs> It's it's happening because there's uh you know OPEC has been fooling around with prices and uh, for far too long, and a deal was struck, but the deal wasn't good enough, and really the prices have collapsed because of the coronavirus uh, situation. Uh, people just aren't uh, driving, they're not flying, the industries are shut down, uh, so you've got you've got this uh, supply demand problem, and you've got OPEC versus free market producers in north america and they're all they've all been producing flat out and uh, nobody wants to say uncle first and opec agreed to cut back uh, but they didn't agree to cut back until may and so this is the problem we have and they didn't agree to cut back enough okay so either either they get an arrangement or something more interventionist has to happen because quite frankly um, you know, certainly Canada and the United States. Uh, these are very. This is a very. This is probably the single most important industry in both countries: oil and gas. 
Okay, Max, do you think how much of this is like a Russia, Saudi Arabia kind of manipulation play and how much of it is just a global recession? Like Diane said there, you know, the planes are not flying, people are not driving, businesses not shipping stuff, conferences are getting canceled. All of that stuff just sort of naturally drives down oil prices, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, OPEC's actually a minor uh, influence here right now. Uh, and we saw that with them, you know, agreeing to take almost 10 million barrels a day off the market, which was the most they'd ever agreed to. And we've sold off viciously uh, after that announcement because th- there's just nothing they could have done. The, the demand destruction right now is too enormous uh, for any cartel action uh, to, uh, to have a meaningful impact. What the market is doing right now is it is saying to producers, whether they're in Saudi Arabia or in Texas, that they need to shut in their production, that, you know, global demand has fallen so far so fast that there's simply no market uh, for their oil. You know, tank tops in in Texas are starting to fill up. It's, it's just we don't have a place to put it. So this is the market working. Uh, it's just unfortunately a really painful thing right now for uh, for places like Alberta. Uh, okay, Diane, what does this mean for the, I guess, the oil industry, especially in Alberta, but for the overall economy? Well, uh, actually, uh, Alberta's oil industry compared to the U.S. industry is actually in somewhat better shape because it's mostly controlled by majors, big, you know, well-financed multinational companies who will cut back, who can last, who have the staying power to hang in there. Whereas down in the U.S., you've got a lot of wildcatters, a lot of small independents. They're producing flat out. And they don't want to stop because they really can't or they go bust. So you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies in the U.S. in the oil sector. You're not going to see so many here. But what we're going to see in Canada is this is an enormous blow to the Canadian economy because oil price prices will drag down the value of other commodities, and commodities is one of the most important underpinnings of our living standards. Yeah. And the other thing is that our biggest export is oil and natural gas. And when your biggest export uh, goes down uh, in, in demand uh, and or price, in, in this case in both, uh, you're going to get uh, some uh, weakness in the dollar. And our dollar has fallen 15% since September against the U.S. dollar. And that will continue to to go on. Uh, the Bank of Canada is intervening on a very aggressive basis. But I would say that our Canadian dollar is headed for 65 cents U.S. Wow. Wow. Okay, Max, is, is that an argument, therefore, for government assistance or some sort of government bailout of the oil patch here. I mean, Jason Kenney, the Alberta premier yesterday made the case that, look, when these oil prices are getting hammered, when this industry is getting hammered like this, it impacts the Canadian banking system, the financial services industry, people's pension funds, uh, you know, government services, the revenue the governments rely on to provide health care. Should the government step in here and bail out the industry? They should. And, and, you know, to some extent, they already have with, uh, you know, 1.7 billion going to help clean up the, the orphan wells that, you know, Alberta has let get out of control. And, and there's other money coming. You know, it, I, I'm not a huge fan of this point, but it's true that Albertans have paid well over $200 billion into Confederation over the last 20 odd years. Uh, in you know, in terms of taxes above what they've received in services, and I do think it's time for Canada to repay that favor. Uh, you know, Albertans have made an investment in the prosperity of other Canadians. Now it's time for them to to make an investment in Alberta. But uh, you know, those, those 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 investments can't be a blank check to oil and gas companies. Uh, it has to be targeted aid. It has to be 
uh, interested in supporting companies that that are you know going to reduce their emissions that are that are living up to their promises on climate change um, and and are going to sort of be able to position themselves in, in the decarbonizing economy that lies ahead but absolutely you know it's time for Canada to Di- step up Diane yeah it's it's interesting yeah. too to note that in Ontario where most of the votes are that the liberals get there was a 13 and a half billion dollar bailout of the auto industry and as an exporter and as an employer it was nowhere near the scale of magnitude in terms of importance as Alberta's and Saskatchewan's oil and gas industry Tim in Surrey on the open line hi Mike, interesting program. Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question to your guest there. Uh, yeah. It seems like the pandemic has uncovered a lot of like dirty little secrets of each industry, and one of them in the oil it always seemed to be was and didn't get a lot of publicity was the issue of orphaned wells when it went yeah. to the Supreme Court of Canada. So I'm wondering, the oil industry didn't seem too happy when the federal government announced that. Are they not wanting to clean up what they've kind of first started? Ma- Max, what what's the deal with that uh, with the cleanup program there? That's a lot of money there to clean up these wells so i I do think that they're you know that they're happy about the money i I just think they want a lot more money what's happened was um you know alberta has a system where uh basically they take an accounting of the cost of cleaning up your wells and the value of your company and if there's a mismatch there they require you to put money down as a deposit the problem is the way they value these companies they assume oil prices from 10 years ago I'm not, I'm not kidding. So uh, what has happened is obviously oil prices are not where they are 10 years ago. The companies are worth far less. And so they can't afford to clean up their wells. And, and the sort of irony is if they, if they change these valuations to current oil prices, they would have to put up more money and that okay. would push a lot of these companies into trouble. So, Diane, what do, what, do you think of, what do you think about that, that program there to clean up these wells? Like I've, I've gotten some emails from listeners saying, like, why are we bailing out? Why don't these oil companies clean up their own messes? Well, I think I think Matt explained the, the intricacies of it. It's quite arcane, but it's yeah. fine. It's about one point seven billion. I'm just saying, as I said before the commercial break, break. You know, they gave a blank check of thirteen and a half billion to the auto industry in two thousand and eight yeah. with that catastrophe, which was due to the drop in demand, and right. they didn't think twice about it. And that industry was never as important. It may be important to liberals, but it was never as important yeah. to Canada's export. Uh, export profile or domestic economy or employment profile as the oil and gas is. And right. so 1.7, 13 and a half billion, I think it's miserly and I think it's more more of the same sabotage by the liberals toward the West because they didn't vote liberal. I think it's a great point. Clint in Surrey, hi. Listen, let's get realistic. If you know anything about economics, this should all collapse. That's what happened before and it's happened now, unfortunately, it's happened. And it should just collect all this money being dished out. I'd laugh at all this money being dished out in the quadrillions and all this. Why don't you just, let, why you just let everything collapse then? Hey? Why don't you just let everything collapse? It should. That yeah, okay. by, by nature, economics, it should all collapse. Start oh, again from man. the ashes. Everything's too expensive now. People at li- living beyond their means, they know what they've done to themselves. And it's happened, and that's, Ma- that's Max, the way it is. Max, what do you say to that? I, I mean, I heard this argument in 2008 when people said that the bank should have been allowed to fail, and yeah. that's a really convenient argument, but it ignores the fact that millions of people would have suffered. It would have caused all sorts of untold misery. It's just, 
I don't agree with that at all. I do want to get a couple of points in, though. Sure. Uh, the, the auto industry is important to liberals. It's also important to conservatives because it was Stephen Harper that bailed out those auto companies in, during the great financial crisis. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as to the liberals hating the energy sector or trying to sabotage it, they bought a pipeline. They're building a pipeline. Yeah. They gave LNG Canada $275 million. So let's not trade in that sort of silliness. Diane, what do you say to that? Think the facts speak for themselves. All righty. Let's go to Daryl and Coquitlam on the open line. Hey, Daryl. Oh, Mike. Uh, right. I believe that the federal government should take an equity position in, in the larger players in the oil field. Uh, I have four members of my family in Calgary who are in the oil business. One of the biggest problems that the oil business has had in the last 30, 40 years is that when times are good, those private jets are flying, the executive dining rooms, the million-dollar salaries. My sister-in-law, who was a, a, an executive at an oil company in Calgary, in one year spent a million dollars on catered lunches to the employees. And what the federal government has mm-hmm. to do is the jets are gone, the executive dining rooms are closed, that's all over with. And just to a point that I, I think the one of your guests, Diane Francis, has made, and I, I'd like her to check this, is that I saw a chart from 1961 to, I believe, 2016, 2017, and the largest contributor by a small amount to equalization was the province of Ontario. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, Diane, what do you think about his points? Diane? Sorry, oh. you're yeah. on mute. Sorry, I didn't hear that question. Yeah, but she was—he was basically saying that maybe the the federal government should take an equity position in some of these oil companies, like really move in. I don't know, nationalize some of these companies. And, and he also made a—he he also argued that Ontario, on uh, over time, has been a bigger contributor to equalization payments than Alberta. Um, I think that that uh, on the issue of equity equity positions, I think they should. And I'm not talking about bailing out the oil companies. I also said off the top of my remarks that the oil industry in Canada is mostly well financed by big companies. It's not going to be in the mess that Texas is because it's a lot of little independent guys. They're not so little, but it's a lot of independent guys, and they're going to, you know, they live by their wits. So. I'm not talking about handing over cash to Exxon to keep the oil sands planted plants it has running. What I'm talking about is whatever you did for the auto industry, whatever you did for the banks, you got to do for the oil industry. Yeah. Okay. Erica, let's squeeze in one more call here. Hi, Erica in Richmond. Go ahead. Hello, uh, Mike. Yeah. Um, what this virus outbreak has taught me is that we cannot rely on exports and the vagaries of the world markets. I believe that government should invest into Alberta to, um, ma- into manufacturing. For instance, crude oil refining, petroleum. I've got it written down now, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, okay, oil. Max, what you, sorry to step on you, but we're out of time. Max, we just got a minute left. Go ahead. I mean, we've, we've, we've heard this for a long time that, you know, Alberta should, uh, you know, should stop. It, it should, you know, build refineries in Alberta and, and yeah. value add there. And look, the economics just don't work. We should be right. exporting. We're good at this. We make some of the best oil and gas in the world, and we should be trying to get as much of it out there as we can. But I think this virus is reminding us that 
we are at the mercy of, of external forces. And, uh, you know, we need to be, I think, a little more thoughtful and careful about uh, how we build our economy going forward. Guys, thank you for an excellent panel and a really good discussion. I appreciate both of you being here. Max Fawcett is a writer for McLean's and the Walrus Magazine. Diane Francis, the very fine columnist at the National Post. She's the editor at large there. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Max. Thank you for all your calls. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the BC economy now and the impact of the pandemic. And you heard on your CKNW newscast there at the bottom of the hour, small businesses just struggling to survive uh, during this pandemic. You just heard your market update there with the big drop on the stock markets again today. It just seems like the news gets uh, gloomier each day as we go along. I'm getting lots of tweets and emails from listeners this morning saying like, you know, all the news just makes people just want to stay in bed, pull the covers up over their head and just maybe hope it just all goes away. But, you know, we're all in this together. At some point or another, we'll get through it. We're going through a lot of pain, though, as we do. And government and public health officials looking for that sliver of light at the end of the tunnel. When can we start to reopen the economy? Have a listen to this. There's a provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, talking about reopening the economy here. We need to find a sweet spot, a balancing of connection that allows us to be with close contacts and close families, but still protecting our health care system, protecting those who are more vulnerable to having severe illness with this virus. So it's going to be a modification for the next year. Okay, looking for the sweet spot as we try to get back to some semblance and normal. Got another great panel for you to talk about the economy in B.C. Muriel Protzer is on the line. She's a policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She uh, sticks up for small businesses in our country. Hi, Muriel. Good morning. Thanks so much for having CFIB on this morning. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Jock Finlayson is also on the line, Vice President, Business Council of B.C. Hi again, Jock. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing good, guys. Thank you to both of you for being here. Muriel, let me go to you first. Let's talk about small business in, in British Columbia. We just heard on our, our newscast there at the bottom of the hour another story about a small business struggling to survive. What's it like out there? It's really tough for small business right now. I think the just overwhelming stress level is really starting to get to people in small businesses, especially in terms of will SMEs be able to make it through this right now. We're seeing that about a third of business owners in BC are worried they may have to close their business permanently due to COVID-19. That's not to say a third will actually do it, but it's certainly a worry. It's just heartbreaking to look down streets and see boarded up businesses that were thriving just a couple of months ago. And, for a lot of businesses, it's just like basically a cash flow problem, like for a lot of sort of brick and mortar businesses, right? I mean, they need that money coming in all the time to just keep going. Yeah, small businesses operate on super razor thin margins and cash flow is a serious concern to small businesses right now. Uh, while we have seen the majority of BC businesses still open, um, we've got 75% is our estimate that are still fully or partially open. They were able to pivot their business to stay open, but there's still a lot of concerns right now. Cash flow topping that number. Uh, we have seen some great financial support programs from the federal government, like the wage subsidy, the 75% one that we'll see open for application on Monday. But there's still a lot of small businesses that are falling through the cracks. Okay, Jock, you guys have been tracking this over at the uh, Business Council of BC and taking a look at the projections for our economy. Where are we, uh, where are we heading right now? Where are we at now and where are we heading? 
Well, it's important to step back and ask first uh, what's happening globally uh, as well as in North America. So we're in the early stages of what will probably be the worst global recession since the 1930s. Uh, just uh, the International Monetary Fund just put their projections out last week, pointing to uh, a substantial decline in global economic activity. And we're going to see, obviously, that play out uh, in Canada and the United States. So against that backdrop, and given what governments are doing to try and control this pandemic, we're looking at probably the worst uh, recession that we've ever experienced in British Columbia uh, in, in, two, oh. in, in 2020. Uh, the only saving grace is that it may be it may be relatively brief. In other words, we're in the middle of a meltdown right now. Started in uh, in March and it certainly continued into April and probably May. But if we do begin to see a stabilization in cases, and Bonnie Henry uh, referred to sort of taking tentative steps to reopen some of the currently shuttered parts of the economy, if that actually plays out over the summer, then we should see some kind of a rebound in the second half of the year. So it's right. going to be a big, a big drop, but hopefully relatively uh, brief. Jock, our, our economy here in BC uh, relies a lot on export industries. And with that global recession you're describing, how does that impact BC's export businesses? Well, indeed, uh, one, one thing I've noticed in the in the news media coverage about what's going on right now is there's quite a strong focus on all the closed businesses because it's so extraordinary that governments would shut down half the the economy for public health reasons. But we don't want to lose sight uh, of what's happening uh, outside our borders. And as you point out, against the backdrop of uh, of, of a desperately weak global economy, we're seeing uh, falling prices for a lot of the goods and commodities that we export. Uh, from BC, and we're also seeing reduced international demand for for our exports. So, I'm looking for maybe a 20% drop in the value of BC's merchandise exports this year, uh, and that comes on the heels of a 7% drop last year. So, that is really contributing in a in a in a fairly significant way uh, to the uh, to the decline we're seeing in the provincial economy. How did Muriel? How does that affect small businesses, especially when you've got falling demand and and consumers maybe kind of reining in their spending? I mean, what's what's your take on sort of the atmosphere out there and, and sort of consumer behavior during this pandemic? Yeah, consumer spending and behavior is a huge concern for small businesses right now. We've already seen uh, a change in how people are able to leave the house, how they shop. Um, the measures that are in place, social distancing, these are things that will continue to occur in the minds of people. Once we do reopen the economy, it's, things won't just go to business as usual. People have changed their habits. And I think small businesses are really having to think hard about how they can adjust their business model um, to be able to accommodate for this and still attract those customers in the doors. I think we need to right now start the conversation uh, to develop a better understanding of how small businesses have experienced this. You do still have their doors open, what's working and what's not, and ensure that customers are able to abide by the rules like physical distancing or other safety measures and make sure that those are still effective in flattening the curve as we do look to reopen parts of the economy. You you mentioned the possibility of a lot of businesses that are shut right now potentially just never reopening which which i think is just a, a tragic thing to contemplate if you have someone that had a thriving business a couple of months ago they get buffeted by this pandemic and then like jock said okay maybe like this is a brutal recession but maybe it'll be short hopefully and then we can start coming back but why is it that some businesses maybe can survive and others may never come back 
Well, it's really difficult right now. Uh, we've got a lot of fixed costs coming due May 1st, just around the corner. That's going to be another rent payment that small businesses will have to make. Uh, from our estimates, we see that only 12% of our membership who are small business owners in BC have indicated they could make it through the summer months on 50% or less of their usual revenues. Now, that's not a significant portion of businesses in BC that could then make it through the summer. And I think this speaks to the importance of discussing how and when we can reopen the economy as we do begin to see signs of containment. Okay, Jock, what about reopening? What do you see sort of long-term as we kind of come out of this thing? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, the the number of cases in BC uh, looks pretty manageable. Uh, we're not seeing the kind of explosion that, uh, that one witnesses in a number of other jurisdictions. Uh, there's only 100 people or so in hospital, which, you know, yeah. we've got 5.1 million people in British Columbia, so we need to have a sense of perspective here. So I think it's important, it's urgent, in fact, to start to reopen some of the shuttered parts of the economy as soon as we can do so, recognizing, and I, I fully respect the, uh, uh, you know, the need to have the, the, the public health folks uh, involved in the decision-making around this. Uh, but, uh, you know, the sooner we can get back to some semblance of business, the better off we're going to be. And, uh, and, and if we don't do that, uh, as, as Muriel is pointing out, there's an awful, I mean, it's a question of cash flow here. I mean, most... Yeah. The most small companies, in fact, most mid-sized companies, find it very hard to survive if their cash drops, you know, 100% or 90% or 80% over a period of three or four months. I mean, that's not something you can plan for. Um, and so the sooner we can get some cash coming, uh, you know, through the door for, for these currently closed businesses, the better off we're going to be. And we'll see fewer business failures. The longer this goes on, I'm afraid the number of insolvencies and bankruptcies is going to rise very, very dramatically. And, and, and our, our political leaders do understand, in Victoria, certainly understand that. Welcome back as we continue talking about the BC economy and the impacts of the pandemic. My guest, Muriel Protzer, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Jock Finlayson, Business Council of BC. Your calls to them, 604-280-9898 is the number. On your cell, it is toll-free, star 9898. Sheila on the line, calling in from Fraser Lake. Hi, Sheila. Hi. Hi there, go ahead. Hi, I uh, I do foot in-home foot care, and this this COVID has totally put me out of business. I can't go into anybody's personal home and give them any kind of foot care whatsoever. My suppliers are all shut down. I couldn't even get supplies if I wanted to. Okay, are you getting any help from the government? No, I haven't applied yet. I'm just it's it's still surreal to me right now. Yeah. Sheila, you should apply for help. I will. I will. I'm I'm uh, part-time security guarding right now. Okay. Sheila, thanks for calling in. I, I hope things turn out better for you. You know, there are government programs out there that people can take advantage of if they've lost their job, if they've been laid off. Uh, Muriel, do you think the, the government assistance packages, like, like from, from a small business perspective, like here's a person running a small business and she's, she's, lost, every, she's lost her whole business there, uh, is the government doing enough? It's extremely difficult times right now. And while there are some really great programs like the 75 wage subsidy, uh, like the CBA loan program we've seen, like the CERB that's supporting people who've lost their jobs, there are still businesses uh, who are falling through the cracks here. 
And I think uh, what comes next, which is really important, is seeing some rent relief, at least. We do have the May 1st deadline approaching really fast. But for people in Sheila's situation where you have seen a complete shutdown of your business, I strongly advise you to call into CFIB. You can check out our webpage, cfib.ca slash COVID-19. We have resource counselors that are experts on the programs and can help you find the support you need. That's good to know because uh, it's a jungle out there, really, with a lot of these programs. And people may got to still have a lot of questions about how to apply and how to qualify and how to get the money and when you'll get the money. So that is good to know that those resources are out there. Jock, what, when you take a look at the, the government assistance that's been out there, it's almost like both levels of government have got the spending taps turned wide open. It's like just like a fire hydrant been opened up with money gushing out. I remember in the old days, before the dark times here, we used to be worried about debt and deficits. Is that just the old days now? We don't care about that anymore? Well, when you're in the middle of a, of a pandemic crisis like this and the, you, know, you feel like the earth is falling away beneath your feet, uh, understandably, business people and, 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 and governments are going to be focused more on, on the here and now. Uh, having said that, um, it is somewhat alarming to see uh, the amount of uh, deficit spending that we're now looking at in Canada in 2020. I think the federal deficit this year uh, which was earlier projected to be, you know, between 20 and 30 billion dollars before the crisis hit. I mean, we're probably going to be approaching 200 billion dollars, uh, and uh, we're not alone. I mean, all around the world, we're seeing governments in the same boat. So I don't want to, I don't want to single out uh, our federal government for any criticism necessarily. But clearly, this scale of deficit spending, yes, we can afford it uh, for a short period of time. Uh, to tide us over until we get into some semblance of normality. But this is not a sustainable track we're on right now. The government of Canada, with a little bit of assistance from the provinces, cannot backstop uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of unemployed people and hundreds and thousands or even millions of businesses that suddenly run out of revenue for very long. So, yes, we can do it. Uh, but it's not something that we can... People talk about 18 to 24 months, for example. I mean, that's insane. Uh, it's out of the question. We can't possibly continue on the path we are at the moment for 18 to 24 months. I mean, the well, country would be completely bankrupt. So. Oh, okay. Well, I, I heard Bonnie Henry the other day talking about uh, 12 to 18 months for travel restrictions. What do you think that would do to the economy? Yeah, well, I, I, when I say... I mean, right now we have both a global recession and half the economy essentially shut down. I do think when we come out of this, we are going to be coming out of it on a step-by-step basis, and I think that's what Bonnie Henry is talking about. We're not going back you know, to the way life was three or four or five months ago. So there are going to be more restrictions on social distancing, the number of customers allowed into a store, uh, much stronger focus on the health and safety of employees. I mean, those are all realities, and there may be some industries like international air travel, conventions, meetings, which don't come back uh, at any time in 2020 that, you know, it takes longer for some of these sectors to return. So I totally get that. But the more we can get, you know, currently closed businesses reopening, at least partially, uh, the more we can kind of stave off the risk of this full-scale economic uh, collapse. Just got two minutes left. Let's squeeze in a couple calls here. We can. Larry calling in from Campbell River. Hey, Larry. Yes, uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you. Very quickly, I own a business in Campbell River. I'd like to be proactive at least thinking about when I might be able to return. And what I'd like to find out is what rights if I have as an employer uh, when an employee who is getting the various grants that are available refuses to come into work as long as these grants are still there. 
And part two of that question is, if they come into work, can they earn uh, employment income and that be deducted from these various grants? What, what, kind of bus- what kind of business are you running there? It's a restaurant, and we're open for takeout and delivery. We kept about 10 staff on, but they're getting tired. What, what's the name of your restaurant? I'll give you a plug right away, real quick. <laughs> it's Boston Pizza in Campbell River. Boston Pizza. Okay, Larry, thank you for that. Well, um, Muriel... Uh, you're allowed to earn. I think it's a thousand bucks a month, right? You can still earn a thousand bucks a month or less, and and still collect the uh, emergency benefit, right? That's correct. If you are on the CERB uh, federal program, you can still earn up to a thousand dollars a month. And I mentioned earlier, CFIB, we have our lines open. If you're wondering about how that works in conjunction with the wage subsidy, give us a call. We'll make sure that someone can give you the details. Page that started in a small town in Nova Scotia. The victims include a Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer. The gunman is also dead. At one point, the suspect was wearing what appeared to be a police uniform and driving a police cruiser. The shootings occurred at several places. Some homes were set on fire, and officials near that fear there may be more victims. The rampage ended hours later, about 55 miles away, after a chase on a busy highway. She goes, oh, my God, lock the doors. He's here. And I peek out the window. And I saw some RCMP vehicles, and there was four or five uniform um, with guns. It's just something that I never ever expect to happen here, this close to home. It's 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 scary, very scary situation. The suspect had a business that made dentures. His motive is unknown at this hour, and some of the killings appear to be random. The dead officer was a 23-year veteran of the force. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith, as we uh, talk now about the aftermath of the Nova Scotia shooting rampage on the weekend. And that report was from ABC News, and that's how an American audience uh, heard about the shooting rampage in our country. Uh, Absolutely tragic and brutal. And the numbers have gone up since that report. At least 19 deaths here as a result of this shooting rampage. And one of the tragic things about it is this investigation continues over multiple crime sites this morning with uh, police uh, shifting through the charred remains of uh, some of the houses that were burned down Uh, there may there's possible there may be more victims there but at this point 19 is the number prime minister justin trudeau this morning talking about it and he mentioned potential for tighter gun control in canada in the aftermath of this terrible shooting rampage in Nova Scotia. Let's talk about this now with Ari Goldkind. He's a criminal lawyer in Toronto, a political commentator. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ari, thanks a lot for coming on. Great to be on with you, Mike. Ari, you've seen a lot of terrible stuff over your career, I'm sure. Where does where does this one rank in terms of just the evil that we saw on display here? Well, it's interesting, Mike. Let's start off with the word you just used there. I have said this for years, even though I'm a criminal defense lawyer and I defend people like this, I would defend him if he was still alive, which makes a lot of people confused. People in this country have a real problem understanding that there is evil amongst us. And I've always thought how naive it is of some people who are always looking to explain away the actions of certain people. They'll cloak it under mental illness when it comes to sort of political or religious attacks. It's always somebody who's mentally ill or not fully of their faculties. And I've always thought it's a complete cop-out that some people in our society are just evil. The same way, Mike, you could probably point to somebody in your family, your grandmother, your aunt, 
your uncle who's just a purely good, decent person that wouldn't harm a fly. And when I look at what I see here with the 16 different settings, the methodical nature of this, the planning of it, the deliberation, sort of like the van attack in uh, Toronto where the man mowed down people on Young Street. You know, some people want to say mentally ill. I just think to myself, Mike, sometimes we need to call a spade a spade. And this is in my career of doing this for about 20 years. The evil of it, which a lot of people don't even know some of the details of it, he was pulling people over by the side of the road and blowing them away along this spree. It's just unbelievable to me. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The depravity of it is just shocking, and it does appear to be premeditated and the, like you said the planning that went into it i mean including even driving around in a, in a fake cop car and i'll tell you that that rcmp uh, vehicle that he was driving around in that fake one that looked convincing so I, i'm not i'm not surprised that people would have potentially pulled over if they see this vehicle it looked real and here's a problem mike and this is the part of the story and i'm sure you and i were going to get to it but i don't know how much time we have but this is the part of the story that any politician listening to us speak or any constituent in nova scotia now there's a real problem with this story and i don't think it's getting enough attention which is you just mentioned that he was in a cop car and i've looked at the cop car mike so have you and your audience it looks as much like a cop car. The only thing different is the badge number on the side by the passenger window. Right. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? If we view every life as precious, and we have all of these stupid amber alerts about COVID-19, the politically correct title for it, or when a child is taken in a divorce proceeding, everybody gets woken up in the middle of the night. You explain to me how any genius here thought by going on to Twitter, Twitter, which most normal sane people don't use. I only use it because I have to use it for work. How an Amber Alert didn't go out to people's phones over this 12 hours to warn man in police car, man dressed as RCMP, do not take your caution down. Be mindful. There are lives here, Mike, and I'm being serious about this. I'm not a hyperbolic person. There are lives here that were sacrificed Because our emergency broadcast system, particularly if it was localized in Nova Scotia, was not used. It is a scandal, and I'm hoping people's feet are held to the fire for it, not that it brings any life back. You know what, Ari? I don't think it's a hyperbolic point at all. I I think you raised a superb point, because this thing unfolded over many, many hours and when you're talking about that police car, that was a very convincing-looking police car that this guy was driving around in. It looked real. And like you said, the police were trying to tell people, well, take a look at the at the badge number painted on the side of the vehicle. Like, why wasn't that Amber Alert put out there? And you're not the only one bringing up this point today. There's a lot of people in our country, and especially in Nova Scotia, as they grieve through this, asking the same question you've got the infrastructure out there to make an amber alert and put out as wide an alert as possible to try and stop this rampage why wasn't it done the police were asked that question yesterday they did not have an answer that's right and remember mike sometimes when you don't have an answer is because there isn't an answer a ball was dropped but different than the ball being dropped for example during the time of this stupid apocalypse and coronavirus you know nobody wants to blame china it's all trump everybody's careful and politically correct this isn't political correctness this is literally 
people's lives. And the problem, and I've talked about this a lot on your network, on your station, Mike, with others that I talk to, there is this insipid idea that ordinary average Canadians are glued to Twitter the way media types like you and me and politicians are. And remember, why does this matter? This was occurring over 12 hours of of time in rural Nova Scotia. The idea that people were left, and I mean this, Mike, I mean this, as sitting ducks to this monster, when if their phone went off with that horrible sound that we all know from the Amber Alert, and Amber Alerts can be long, Mike, just for your audience to be clear on this, Amber Alerts are not two lines. If it said, look, active shooter in RCMP car, doing this, I'm not even going to say how it should go, you probably, you wouldn't have avoided the loss of many of the lives, Mike, let's be honest about that. But how can we say to the two or three people that were pulled over by the side of the road whose phones would have dinged, do not respond. This is a really sad situation, and as much as people want to get into the weeds of this or examine his motives, we may never know. My view is that there was a massive government policing screw-up here, and we just have to call it what it is. Well, when you take a look at the province's Amber Alert system that they have in place, the parameters of it include right there in black and white, active law enforcement responses. This system is available to warn people about an active law enforcement uh, in response to a threat to the public. So I think it's obvious it should have been used. The police yesterday in Nova Scotia is saying that they felt that they felt that using Twitter was a more instantaneous way to communicate with people, which I, I just don't see how that you can you can justify something that. like that. Mike, we have to be honest about it. That's yeah. the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I saw that. It's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But please continue. Okay. Also, Nova Scotia, the Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil did not comment on this yesterday. And look, I mean, a lot of people have lost their lives. The country is grieving. And, you know, I mean, you don't want to start piling on police as, as they as they grieve. But I think it's a legitimate question uh, to be raised and to ask in the days forward as we try to get to the bottom of this. Well, that's fair. That's a fair point. Now, again, I don't know how much time we have. I assume very little. It's not piling on police. The police, in fact, lost one of their own and another one of their own is in deep trouble. And Miss Stevenson, I believe her name is Heidi Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, I, this is not piling on police. But if you're going to have public servants that are accountable, we look to where the evidence takes us, not political correctness, not thoughts and prayers or the crap that politicians spew out after every terrorist attack. We must look at what happened here and we can't bring this back. We can't undo time. This man is not going to stand for trial. And by the way, I'm not blaming politicians for this are saying they caused death that is solely on the backs of the monster who should be named this idea that you don't name him in my view is stupid as well but that's Uh. where the evil lies but at the end of the day if we have amber alerts going out and saying don't go to the grocery store and social distance and don't play golf with your friends in rural nova scotia it's hard for me to understand how anybody would think stupid anti-social twitter is the place to warn people at 3 in the morning. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith, as we continue talking about the Nova Scotia shooting rampage with my guest, Ari Goldkind. He's a criminal lawyer based in Toronto, political commentator. We're talking about the aftermath of this shooting rampage, how it was handled by the authorities. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calling for stricter gun control this morning. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Michelle on the open line in Langley. Hi, Hi, good morning. 
Hi, go ahead. Uh, I have a concern about the suggestion that they should have used the Amber Alert system. If you alert a large group of people that they should ignore communication from police vehicles, there's a piece of that that's essentially suspending police authority in that area and will have a huge impact on their ability to respond to the active shooter. Like, there's there's potential consequences to saying, hey, there's someone out there dressed like a police officer, don't pay attention to him. How do you tell people... Don't pay attention to the bad guy, but pay attention to well, the Well, I, I think what you would tell them, Ari, for your comment, I think what you would tell them mm. is the number of the, the badge number on the side of the vehicle. Yeah, I think, I, look, with all due respect to your caller, if that's the biggest problem that she thinks that would have happened over those 12 hours, there's a lot of ways to avoid that. First of all, as I said, and perhaps your caller isn't sure, the Amber Alert isn't two lines. It could say if you find that you're in the middle of a rural road, and you're driving and you're getting pulled over by a lone RCMP vehicle, do not pull over. Continue. Go to a police detachment. At the end of the day, if we're now worried about 12 hours, and I want to be serious and respectful of the caller, but this is to me a clear line in the sand. If the solution is leave people as sitting ducks in case a policeman or woman comes because you're not socially distancing or because you're having a house party, versus warning people that there's a person wearing an RCMP uniform and driving a totally legit-looking RCMP car that may pull you over and blow your brains out. So just keep driving to your local detachment. I think I would take that trade-off over those 12 hours, Mike. Let's go to Keith and Burnaby on the open line. Hi. Yes, hello. Thanks for taking my call. I have two concerns. One is of the police vehicle, and the others of the uniform. I um, think there should be some review into uh, police vehicles that are sold after they are no longer in service and how thoroughly the markings and the equipment on those vehicles are removed. And secondly, uniforms. I understand, and I'm, I might be mistaken, but say retired uh, police officers get to retain their uniform. I think there needs to be some control or, or eliminate okay. the practice altogether. Uh, what happens to that uniform um, later down the road, and okay. and and can somebody get acquire it? Thanks for the call, Ari. Your thoughts? So yeah, so Mike, that's an interesting point. Let me take it in a different direction because I think your caller raises a good point. But here's what we have to be cautious about: we don't know how this car was painted up this way. We don't know right. if it was taken off a lot or he bought a normal, regularly priced car and plan this for six months and i'm a big believer that when we don't know we don't speculate and here's why i would be very cautious to go down the road your caller suggesting there are thousands of cops who retire every month there are hundreds of cop cars that get put out to pasture every month because one man in nova scotia was a piece of human garbage evil we should not go around changing everything to avoid that remote possibility. And quickly, Mike, you'll remember, there was a serial killer in Ontario who went into nursing homes, Elizabeth Wetlofer. And, you know, she killed older people. And the solution was, let's all focus on how we stop uh, serial killers in nursing homes, which is a very rare thing, rather than people paying much more attention to the fact that nursing homes and long-term care homes are terrible. We know that now in COVID. But people want to get distracted i think by things that won't make the world better at the end of the day this man was evil we don't know how he got away with it i'm not taking my 
answer about the Amber Alert any farther into terms of you've got to burn old police uniforms or old police cars, I think that's going too far. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the story of our lives here in the COVID-19 pandemic. And every day just seems to bring more disappointing and, and bad news about the economy and just stuff getting canceled. So yesterday was the Honda Celebration of Light, the iconic fireworks festival in Vancouver canceled yesterday. It just joins a long list of other major events in the city that have been canceled so far. The Vancouver International Jazz Festival canceled. The Cloverdale Rodeo canceled. Uh, the PNE all but canceled this week. And it just keeps going on and on. You want to talk about some of the music festivals all around British Columbia. I mean, this is a province of, of music festivals every single summer. And man, that is just a, a sad uh, reading to go down this list. The Vancouver Island Folk Festival uh, canceled. The Caslow Jazz Festival in the Interior canceled. The Salmon Arm Roots and Blues Festival. The Cowichan Valley Bluegrass Festival. The Parksville Beach Music Festival. These are all canceled. The Fantastic Music Festival in Port Alberni on the island. Like some, some of these festivals are, are big and iconic and you may have heard of them. Others are small community events and they're just all getting canceled. And uh, it's just sad. I think it's a sad thing, but I'll tell you, for the people who are organizing these events, this is a huge challenge. Uh, there's a lot of effort goes into setting these events up. Uh, a lot of the tickets are sold in advance. Man, what, what are the people going to do who have been working on these festivals now as these uh, cancellations just pile up like dominoes now? Let's check in with Deb Beaton-Smith now. She is with the BC Music Festival Collective, and they're just trying to muddle their way through this. Hiya, Bev. Thanks for coming on. Or Thank Deb? you. Glad glad uh, you were able to ask me to do that. Thank you, Deb, for coming on. First of all, uh, let me ask, what is the BC Music Festival Collective? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a it was it came together this month. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, a sign of our times of things moving really fast. So, it's a it's a it's a collective of independent BC music festivals and we got together really organically, although the original idea had been, had been kind of tossed around about, you know, that there would be real value in having music festivals in BC have, have a, a larger voice. And that was Christine Hunter from Shambhala and uh, Julie Fowler, Fowler from Artswell. Um, so, when they sort of reached out and started reaching out to people that they knew that were festival artistic directors and, and producers, um, they just gathered a bunch of people and said, anybody who is, it has a independent music festival and wants to get on this call. Here it is. So right. around the first of the week, first of the month, rather 70, over 70 people came on that first call and over 50 festivals. And that's where we've started from. Wow, okay, and I just read a partial list there of some of the festivals that have been cancelled. Are there are there any major ones that I did not mention that jumped out at you that have been now been cancelled? Vancouver Folk Fest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you probably did uh, uh, the uh, Vancouver International Jazz Festival. Yes. Victoria, Victoria's International Jazz Festival is also cancelled. Um, Sunfest here on the island oh. and Lake Town Shakedown. Oh man, those are those are fun events, super popular. 
Boy, these yeah, are these are sure. tough. These are sad days to to hear about all these great events canceled in our in our province. And what are some of the um, the impacts of that? Like, I I know some of these uh festivals they sell tickets in advance, right? So I mean, this is this oh, has yeah. got to be tough. <laughs> yes, uh, that that's that's an understatement as to you know kind of yeah. how it's not. I mean, festival. Um, directors and and people that work on festivals this is a real labor of love and and for music the community it brings together and um it's a real heartful you know to 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 have to sort of change the direction of getting all of this together and and seeing what you know having watching people have fun and bringing a community together to to enjoy uh different offerings in various parts of all over the province and and instead doing something really that they've never done before which is kind of simultaneously figure out how to how to stop everything and everybody's gears are in a different phase of motion really depending on the size of the festival it really varies right so for people for organizers that have already laid out some financial commitments and and have spent money on organizing these things or maybe have sold tickets and collected money uh, how is how is that working i mean do people get refunds or uh, you know is this forcing anybody into financial hardship uh well the 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 latter the last question you ask is yeah i mean i would say you know the <clears throat> the biggest the biggest challenge for festivals is the financial survival of this and making sure that we can come back. Right. Um, you know what? I think that's a question that um, the festival goer wants to know. If the festival that they've attended um, gets canceled, what happens? And um, I think, you know, these are, again, I mean, really unprecedented times um, as to, as to what happens with this many events get canceled so first of all as a collective i mean really every single even though we're we're trying to do some things and and get information together and you know do some things together that decision on what happens uh to the festival goers and the tickets is really up to each individual festival and anybody who's bought a ticket is going to be receiving you know information on how that's being handled i know some festivals are looking at at a, I guess a, a three-way option where where um, uh, there could be like a rollover to you know we're going to postpone this till next year, right. um, or or would you consider a ticket donation or would you consider a partial donation? Would you you know like that kind of thing where would is this would you consider a donation to the arts uh, or or a refund? So I think, you know, that's one scenario that I've seen from a couple of the festivals, but every single festival, it has to look at, at their own finances. And sometimes, you know, there can be differences depending on the service provider that they're using, and they'll need to make sure that, that they understand the service provider agreement that they have. So the third party that is not related to the festival that they use in order to purchase tickets. I mean, everybody's familiar with Ticketmaster. That's a, that's a service provider. So, you know, what kind of agreement is it in, in then going ahead and canceling and getting that refund? So every single individual festival is, is kind of in a different position. Some false small festivals, you know, they, they have their, um, they do their ticketing on their own. They don't actually use a third party And some festivals, you know, they've created their own, um, system themselves internally to their festival. It just really depends. 
Speaking to Deb, Be- uh, Deb Beaton-Smith with the BC Music Festival Collective, and we're talking about all the cancelled festivals around the province, uh, sadly, this summer. Bev, uh, or Deb, you mentioned that the for a lot of people who are organizing these music festivals, like you said, it's a labor of love. And a lot of them are small community events. I'm, I'm sure there's not a lot of people getting rich off of these things, and it's just it's for the love of the art and love of the music. What's it been Absolutely. like when, yeah, when you talk to the organizers of these events? A lot of them are volunteers. What are sort of the emotions you're hearing from people? I mean, this must be heartbreaking. There's a huge amount of concern for like really every aspect, all the layers of the festivals. You know, like the festival goers. The staff, the volunteers, the the artists, the yeah. contractors, the you know, there's then there's third party. There's so many different levels in putting this together, and they all need to survive. And the experience that those contractors, which in our business, you know, there's a lot of contractors. This is a gig economy, and it's very, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real, the, the you know, if you look at the bright spot of some of this, is that there is we're meeting weekly um as a whole we're meeting we've got subgroups there's a feeling of community and solidarity and there is you know we are trying to get through this together and i think that that's kind of a common thing that we're hearing in covid19 is is that you know we we are maybe taking a step back to basics and doing the things that you know humanity really needs you know this is so Deb, thank you for coming on. I hope there are better days ahead. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for uh, asking me on.